Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we gather together this evening around the teaching of your word, we anticipate by faith your ministry among us. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to be present and at work so this might be good and fruitful for us as your gathered church. Indeed, we ask you to ever and always be challenging us to receive in new and fresh ways this good news that you have for us from your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is Article 23. We'll read these words aloud together. It is important that the part of our liturgy that says confession of faith is the Apostles' Creed, that which we share with all Christian churches, and it is that shared confession that is explained further with these words. Article 23 of the Belgic Confession, let us say together, We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ, and that in it our righteousness before God is contained, as David and Paul teach us when they declare that man blessed to whom God grants righteousness apart from works. And the same apostle says that we are justified freely or by grace through redemption in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we cling to this foundation, which is firm forever, giving all glory to God, humbling ourselves, and recognizing ourselves as we are, not claiming a thing for ourselves or our merits, and leaning and resting only on the obedience of Christ crucified, which is ours when we believe in Him. That is enough to cover all our sins and to make us confident, freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach without doing what our first father, Adam, did, who trembled as he tried to cover himself with fig leaves. 
In fact, if we had to appear before God relying, no matter how little, on ourselves or some other creature, then, alas, we would be swallowed up. Therefore, everyone must say with David, Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servants, for before you no living person shall be justified. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to begin this morning with a, this morning, well I did begin this morning, but we begin this evening with a question that is relevant every time we gather together in the evening to study the confessions of our church. And the question is simply this, why are we here? And as I ask this question, I want to ask it as a matter of motivation. What is the energy? What is the If you were to arrive at a point, many of you are there, some of us are not. I'm in a season right now where, if I'm honest, I'm not entirely there. If we arrive at a point where we have a bounce in our step of eagerness to be gathering together in the evening to study the Belgic Confession, why would we? Why should we be eager to do this? What is the motive that drives us, that energizes us to be here? Number one, why are we here? We are motivated to gather a second time each Lord's Day because of, and I want to give you three different motivations. Part of the point here is there can be times where one of these may feel less compelling. All three of them can work together. First, we are here because of the importance of our minds. One of the things we are about as a particular church, and one of the things we are about as part of the Reformed tradition more generally is recovering the biblical emphasis that we are more than our minds. We are not just minds, we are bodies. And God did not give us bodies simply as a way to bring our brains to church, but he gave us bodies because our bodies matter. And so we make much of the earthiness of worship. This morning, speaking of water and bread and wine as means that God ministers to us. But there is a worry some have, and I think it's a valid worry, That as we seek to be part of that recovery of the idea that we are more than our minds, the worry is that we might think we are less than our minds. That is, forget the fact that how we think, what we think, really does matter. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How and what we think matters for how we live. And what the Apostle Paul says there in Romans 12 is in the context of real danger. Paul is saying you are in danger of being conformed to the world, being shaped by the world, being swept up into a path that ultimately is headed toward destruction. That danger is real. And instead of that, you need to be transformed, be made like Christ, to be made to love and desire the path that is good. And one of the ways that happens is by our minds being renewed. Now, there are more ways that it happens, but one of the ways is our minds. It is endlessly easy to take for granted the way in which the way we think transforms how we live. The way in which the way we think transforms, affects who we are. And so we do this work in part because we are convinced 
True thinking, wise thinking matters for life. And this is one of those practices we have that centers that, roots us in that. Second, why are we here? We are motivated to gather a second time each Lord's Day because of, letter B, the value of habits passed on generationally. It is very easy when something starts to feel like a habit to think that it is somehow a lesser thing. There is a uh, cultural themes both in broader American culture and in American Christianity in particular that prizes spontaneity, that prizes what flows out of the heart's desire in the moment and tends to neglect the idea of a practice, a habit that we submit ourselves to that we might be formed by it. This is one of those, and I want to encourage you, back to A, to think this way more, of a habit where the whole point to it, the strength of it, is that it is automatic. That it's not even a question to be asked. It is, in fact, part of who you are, that you assemble and gather around a certain pattern. And part of the value of that habitness is that it has the ability to get us, to affect us, to grab us, precisely when our desires are wrongly ordered, when we don't overflow with the right desire, when there is something we would rather do that is contrary to it. Moreover, the scriptural picture is of things that God's people do. Think of the entire books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Things that God's people do, actions he gives them that form them and that do so specifically generationally. That some of you need to think, perhaps in a more front and center way than you do, that you are gathering to be reinforcing the habit for the sake of others. That there are others who, you, there may be a particular doctrine where everything Pastor Nick is about to say, you already know it. You can fill in all the blanks before the sermon starts. Why are you here? Well, all sorts of reasons. All sorts of reasons that are enough to be the reason. One of them is, to reinforce that habit for others, to say this is good and right, to be studying and learning these things, and I am motivated to be part of that rhythm of gathering for the sake of others. And finally, let us see, we're motivated by the beauty of using the Reformed confessions, and I mean using confessions in particular. Part of the beauty of this, using the confessions, is that we are saying we are not the first ones to have read the Bible. That there are those who have read God's Word before us, and we desire to learn and study God's Word in a way that learns from them, in a way that is guided in wisdom from them. You know there are many who would say, if you're studying the confession, that must be instead of Scripture. Why would you do that? Isn't the Bible enough? Shouldn't you be studying Scripture? And our response is, we are studying Scripture, and the confession is our guide. It is our teacher. It is pointing us to God's Word. It is explaining God's Word. It is helping us to understand God's Word rightly. Everything of value in our confessions is because of Scripture and pointing us to Scripture. What we should find beautiful is the wisdom of doing that with others. And I don't mean the others who are here, though of course that is true. I mean doing that with others in the history of the church who can give us this grounding, this rooting in how to read God's word faithfully. I think there are conversations with other Christians where we need to be less apologetic about this. In no way is the confession instead of Scripture. 
It is our response to Scripture, it is a summary of Scripture, and it is a guide to reading Scripture wisely. What I'm wanting to emphasize here is that that is not just true, it's beautiful, it's desirable, it's lovely that we would study and learn God's Word in that way. So, our minds matter, habits matter, and the practice of using confessions in particular is beautiful. Well, with that motivation, we turn then, number two, the doctrine of justification. As I said a moment ago, we've been in a sequence of articles really leading up to this summary point, and the article we have before us is both summarizing this doctrine of how we are made right with God and describing in some fresh ways the beauty of it, our response to it. So we're going to look at both of those ideas, the summary of the doctrine and also the beauty of our response to it. Number two, the doctrine of justification, we are made right with God as a gift of his free grace received by faith alone. Our confession makes much of the fact that this is received by faith. The language which is ours when we believe in him. This is why we read from Romans chapter 3, letter A on your outline. Faith alone is the instrument by which we receive justification. And every word of that summary is important. The role of faith is as an empty hand, an instrument receiving the blessing of being forgiven, of being right with God. Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And Paul's whole theme through that chapter that we read is that as received by faith, it is not earned or deserved by accomplishing or doing the works of the law. Thus far, as a summary, that is very simple. But there are aspects of the renewing of our mind that we can take for granted in just how important this specific way of speaking is. Faith alone, the instrument by which we receive One of the ways this is so important, this is emphasizing the grace of God in salvation, that it is gift. We all have ways that we are tempted to wander into feeling like we are earning or deserving something. The reason our confession goes to great lengths to remind us of this language is to emphasize grace. But there's more than that. We just use the language of faith alone It's interesting that the only place in the Bible where the phrase faith alone is actually used is in James when James says we are not justified by faith alone. So we do need to think deeply. We need to understand what are we talking about there. Well, the word justified is being used in different ways, but so is the word alone. The idea here is simply this. Faith only. Faith is the thing that receives justification. Our good works are not We do not earn or deserve or accomplish anything. But, as we're going to say next week in Article 24, that faith alone by which we receive justification is never alone. There will always be good works accompanying it because the faith by which we receive justification is also the faith by which we are united to Christ and therefore we are changed. So why do we say faith alone at all? I believe it's the Reformed theologian Francis Turretin, and I'm sure someone here can correct me if I'm quoting this wrong, but I believe it was Turretin who uses the metaphor of it being like our eyes. 
Our eyes alone are the instrument by which we see. But eyes alone cannot see. They need the rest of the body. Both of these things are true. Eyes alone are the instrument by which we see, but our eyes cannot be alone if we are going to see. They need the rest. Likewise, faith alone, faith only, is the instrument by which we receive justification, but it will always have works alongside of it. And why does that matter so much? Well, if we don't get this right, we easily fall into our works being the means by which we are earning something, or we fall into the rejection of the necessity of works at all, and rejecting the whole biblical positive view of the role of our obedience in the Christian life. Another reason this is so important, to say faith alone is the instrument by which we receive, is that this speaks to how our assurance works that we receive assurance of salvation looking away from ourselves. Faith looks away. Faith is the means by which something is granted to us, and the place of assurance is in that looking away, looking to Christ. Faith alone by which we receive. Letter B, well, what is this thing we are receiving? Being justified means that we are forgiven. The opening statement of our confession, we believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ and that in it our righteousness before God is contained. In the forgiveness of our sins. And beautifully, when the confession quotes the Apostle Paul, the confession chooses a place where the Apostle Paul is quoting David in the language of Psalm 32. And so one of the things being emphasized by our confession, this has always been God's way. That, yes, Old Testament and New speak of works. Yes, Old Testament and New speak of the forgiveness of our sin received only as a gift. Notice in particular in Romans 3 that language of propitiation, the language of turning away the wrath of God, that there is something our sin deserves and the debt has been paid. Again, if we're asking the question of the importance of our minds, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we not say, oh, God forgives us because he decided to start being nice. You know, he was mean before, insisting upon judgment, and he decided to be nice instead and says, oh, never mind, let it go. Well, if God can forgive on a whim, he can stop forgiving on a whim. And the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God forgives on a whim, but that the debt has actually been paid. In the language of our confession, that the sin is actually covered. It is not in God's sight because what Christ has done has satisfied that for us. The language of Psalm 32, which our confession quotes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This has always been God's way and it has not changed. But our confession says more. Our justification, our being right with God, is not just a matter of forgiveness, so a, a punishment that we deserved that falls on Christ instead, it is also letter C. Being justified means that we have been given the righteousness of Christ in union with him. It's not simply a matter of a debt paid, but of actual righteousness credited to us, counted as being ours because we are united to Christ. The Belgic Confession, that in it our righteousness before God is contained, then, quoting David and Paul, blessed to, that man blessed to whom God grants righteousness apart from works. The last part of that first paragraph, 
resting, leaning and resting only on the obedience of Christ crucified, which is ours when we believe in him. Christ's obedience is our obedience. Uh, one of the most beautiful verses speaking of this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As our catechism says, as though we had been as perfectly obedient as he was obedient for us, as though we had never sinned nor been a sinner. All right, so if we're doing the hard work of the renewal of our minds, the way we think about these things, why does it matter so much to add not just forgiveness because a penalty has been paid, but forgiveness because in God's sight we have received Christ's righteousness, that he looks at us in Christ. Well, this way of speaking of salvation deeply affects how we think and feel and live regarding the gospel. This affects our confidence. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. When God looks at you, he smiles upon you in the way he smiles upon his son who is perfectly righteous. Because he looks at you as one who is in union with Jesus. Jesus represents you. He is the head, you are the body. And so this is not just a matter of there was a debt and has been paid mathematically off in a distance. This is the danger of a bank account analogy for these sorts of things. The bank account analogy is good. It is Christ's righteousness, not yours, by which you are saved. And the idea of transferring helps preserve that biblical truth. But the danger is that we picture Christ far away from us. The biblical language is that we are in Christ, united to him, belonging to him. This is the language of our confession repeatedly. Because of Jesus Christ, through redemption in Jesus Christ. That language of in Jesus Christ is pervasive throughout the language of the Apostle Paul. That you are saved not just because Jesus did something over there far away, and then God zapped you with something as an individual, whether you think of it as simply a debt on a book somewhere or a bank account with righteousness placed in it. Rather, he saves you in union with Jesus, connected with him. And brothers and sisters, you must allow that to affect, to form how you think of how God views you. In all of your ups and downs of the Christian life, in all of your progress with fits and starts of loving and serving Him, you are ever and always identified as one who belongs to Jesus, and He views you in Him. Another reason that language matters so much running throughout this article of the confession that we are in union with Jesus, covered by him, belonging to him, having his righteousness, is that this is also a communal way of speaking of salvation. We are deeply formed by virtue of simply living in the Christian church in America. We are deeply formed by relentlessly individualistic ways of talking about salvation. It has dominated the way we speak of it for nothing less than hundreds of years. And this way of speaking, of being in union with Christ and therefore receiving his righteousness, emphasizes our togetherness. How? Well, if you are in Christ as the head, and you are in Christ as the head, and you are in Christ, we are also all together as the body. And the body imagery now is inseparable from the imagery of how we're united to Jesus. It's one and the same image. 
The biblical image explaining how you receive salvation in Christ is also the image that speaks of your union together as the church. And this reformed way of speaking, or I should say, this reformed emphasis flowing from the way the Apostle Paul speaks of salvation and union with Christ is what energizes our life together as God's people. It is why our fellowship after the service is in many ways just as important as what we are doing in the service. Because that togetherness is an expression of who we are as the body of Christ. And these reformed ways of speaking in the Belgic Confession are reinforcing that, are centering that, are driving us to love and acknowledge that. We are saved in union with Christ, and that means we are saved together, and that means our togetherness has deep, rich, spiritual meaning and significance. Well, the Belgic Confession, as I said a moment ago, spends much of its time on our response to all of this. And so we turn to that now. Number three, our response to this good news. We confess that we cling to this foundation. And with those words, I'm quoting the Belgic Confession halfway through that first paragraph. Therefore, we cling to this foundation, which is a beautiful language that emphasizes both the promises of God and our response of faith. I love these words, we cling to this foundation. The emphasis is on the foundation. It is sure and certain, and it is not you. The foundation is not something you have made, not something you have created, not something you have accomplished. And yet, our response to it, often our experience, is something like clinging. It is a whole person thing, that the faith that looks to Jesus is a means by which we're united to him, and thereby we are all changed. Our whole person is changed, and so it is a life then of clinging to him and to that foundation. We could say it is a matter of the orientation of our whole lives. The, the faith that turns to him reorients our lives toward him. The confession then goes on to describe several of the ways in which, or the, uh, what it looks like, when we are clinging to that foundation. Letter A, worship. This will work, of course, for any article of the confession, but 23 mentions it in particular. All theology leads to doxology. All theology leads to worship. The confession says, Therefore we cling to this foundation which is firm forever, giving all glory to God. I suppose it's obvious, but we should think about this. This doctrine in particular of receiving justification by faith reorients us toward our Creator in the posture of receiving a gift. This doctrine in particular does that. When that happens, we're being reminded of something deep about who we are as creatures. That moment when we gather together and we encounter a doctrine that we knew, the, the information that's there in our brain, we knew it, but we encounter it and it orients us, we are turned toward Christ, this is a life-transforming thing. Every danger we face this week, every temptation we face, every temptation to give over to fear and dread in the face of difficult and dark providence, every temptation to choose a path of destruction, all of it could be summarized as a failure to be turned toward our Creator in worship. To then be seeking to worship something else, whether it be self or the things of God's creation. And we need as a habit, as a pattern, each Lord's Day to be turned toward our Creator. 
And this doctrine in particular does that. That we can offer nothing apart from what we have received. And so every good thing we have, even the good works that God gives to us, are that for which we give God all the glory. We are gathered here that that doxology, that worship, would then orient everything we do through the week. B, humility. This doctrine gives us a humble orientation toward God, each other, and the world. The confession goes on. It says, giving all glory to God, and then it says, humbling, our, humbling ourselves and recognizing ourselves as we are, not claiming a thing for ourselves or our merits, and leaning and resting only on the obedience of Christ crucified. Ours when we believe in Him. Notice that both the language of humbling ourselves, which of course is explicit about humility, I, I understand, but also the language of leaning and resting. Leaning and resting, a very humble posture. Humility toward God. We cannot claim or demand anything. All that we have is a gift. Humility toward each other. Beware a desire to anxiously prove something to God in a way that can end up being divisive toward each other as we're always seeking to one-up each other in the proof of holiness that might then prove something toward God, which is the opposite of a posture of humility. And toward the world. Why do we need to encounter this doctrine over and over and over? That we might be reminded that all that we have received that distinguishes us from an unbelieving world has been a pure gift of God. And that we are therefore eager to show that same grace in our receiving of others to that same grace. And finally, confidence. Let us see. Leaning and resting on Christ makes us confident that we are welcome in the presence of our Creator. The second paragraph. This is enough to cover all our sins and to make us confident, freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach. The Belgian Confession here is, art, is, is challenging us, this article is challenging us, to take seriously just what it is we are being saved from. And to take seriously the fear and dread that would appropriately, understandably, be ours apart from Christ. When we are aware of our sin, when we are aware of how it damages, not just, not just violates the holiness of God, but damages other human beings around us, and we imagine being in the presence of the Holy Creator, this ought to, apart from Christ, mean fear, dread, and terror. And I'm intrigued by the Belgic Confession's choice to use such vivid language, the terror of God's approach, and to speak of Adam and Eve in the garden, having realized their sin, representing us as all of humanity, realized their rebellion, and knowing immediately what that means is needing to hide from God because of what our sin deserves. We think here of the language of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
Speaking of Israel at Mount Sinai, the presence of God, the theophany expressed on the top of the mountain. Verse 20 continues, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the sort of picture that the Belgic Confession is bringing to mind for us of the terror, the fear, that would rightly be ours apart from Christ. And we must be honest that the awareness of that is not always far from us. That there are times where that feels near. We are aware in moments of having fallen into sin. We are aware in moments of having hurt others. We are aware, perhaps sometimes most painfully, in moments of dark providence, not tied to sin in particular, but a moment of a dark providence that makes us fear that I have it wrong. Is this simply God's wrath? Is this simply because of all of that other sin? We need to first take seriously that that impulse is not entirely wrong. There's something about who we are in Adam apart from Christ that rightly responds in that way. But when the apostle in Hebrews 11 describes that fear, it is not to say a contrast with how things once were and now it's not. It's rather to celebrate what Christ has made possible. God has not changed, but Christ has accomplished something. And so Hebrew 12 continues, and this was actually our call to worship this morning. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The apostle paints that picture of fear at the approach of God, at the presence of God, and he says, you're actually closer to God than what Israel was experiencing at Sinai. That that was merely a theophany in this world. You, in Christ, have access to heaven itself. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To God, the judge of all. Here is the reference to God as judge, and yet he says, it is this God in whose presence you are enjoying, in whose presence you are enjoying in worship. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In those moments where the fear and dread that the Belgic Confession here refers to does not feel far away. The answer is not to ignore that reality, to hide from it. It is to acknowledge it and to look to Christ. And to hear the good news that because of what God has done for us in Him, we receive only by faith the status of being righteous in His sight. The status that the Belgian Confession so beautifully emphasizes means we are welcome in His presence to enjoy His presence. And letter D, Enjoying that fellowship with God is the reason we exist. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the forgiveness of sins that we have received in Christ. We thank you for his blood that has paid the penalty for our sin. We thank you for his perfect life of righteousness that is ours as we are in union with him. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to respond with the worship, the love, the service that is rightly yours. Indeed, we ask you in that life to give us the joyful and glad experience of your presence. For we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.